Amen. Amen. Thank you for that prayer, Ryan. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. My name is Michael Aitchison, as Ryan uh, mentioned. I'm the pastor of Christ United Fellowship, and I'm honored to be here serving with you all this morning. And uh, Ryan and Josiah are both very dear to me. We serve on the missions committee together here at the YMCA, and I am very appreciative for the deep love that both of these men have for our city. And we, uh, as often as we can, get together and pray for our city, and we are indeed co-laborers in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the city of Orlando and Cross Point. We do pray for you all as well. Different traditions, but the same Lord and Savior. So we love you, and I bring my love and greetings from Christ United Fellowship this morning. And this morning, I want us to consider Psalm chapter 87. I'll read the text in our hearing and ask the Lord's blessing over our time. Psalm chapter 87. Uh, you may have heard the hymn written by the famous John Newton, entitled, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It's based off this hymn, and these are the words recorded in Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. Verse 6, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gathering of the saints today. And we ask you to bless the reading of your word. Lord, we ask you to bless the preaching of your word. And Father, I pray that you would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, remove the veil off of blind eyes, remove the block out of deaf ears. And Lord, I pray if there be any in our presence who don't know you, who are stuck in their sin, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would hound them and wrestle them to the ground, that they may run to the altar and ask the great question, the most important question of all, how can I be saved? Lord, I ask you to empower me this morning. I boast in my weakness. I boast in Christ alone that your power may rest upon me. Empower me now for this, your service. May my words be yours and what is not of you, let it fall to the ground. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I grew up in Miami, Florida, the great nation of Miami, Florida. And I'm also the product of a Jamaican man and an African-American woman, to be politically correct. And growing up in Miami, I was able to experience myriad cultures. I was able to experience a host of different foods, a host of different backgrounds, a host of different worldviews. And with that came tension among different peoples as well. We all tend to elevate our own ethnicity above others, and we think that we are always the best that there is. Sometimes we tend to think that we are the only ones uh, that God has created. That's true of every single ethnic group, every single culture, subculture, and sub-subculture. That's just the way of the world. That's the sin of our hearts. Uh, it's called ethnocentrism. 
And one day while I was in high school, I went to the Miami Killian Senior High School. For those of you who may have some familiarity with Miami, uh, national football powerhouse, uh, we had a prayer day in front of the school. And, you know, I was one of those kids in high school, what they called a super saint. I loved Jesus. I was on fire for Jesus. I was a leader in the FCA group. I was a spiritual leader on the team. And one day we had prayer day in front of the pole. And after I got off the bus and gathered around the pole with several of my friends with whom I was very familiar, I noticed that other people that didn't look like me started to gather around the pole. I noticed that other people who didn't sound like me started to gather around the pole. I noticed other people who didn't exactly dress like me started to gather around the pole. And it's not that all these different people gathered around the pole and started praying to a different God. When we all prayed, we prayed in the name of the true and living God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And something about that struck me. Something about that as a junior in high school stood out to me that there were a host of people that did not look like me, that did not attend the same church that I attended, but loved Jesus. It expanded my view of what God was doing in his work of salvation. It expanded my view of the kingdom of God. Uh, What I realized that day is that there were more than just black, white, and Caribbean people that were a part of the kingdom of God. There were people from almost every nation uh, under the sun that were around that pole. And today in our text this morning, the psalmist drives us to that reality that God's program of redemption, God's program of salvation includes redeeming people uh, beyond the person you see in the mirror every day. Uh, You're not the only one and your kind is not the only kind that the Lord is saving. And this morning in our text, we'll see that God has a heart for the nations. And I want us to consider three divisions in our text this morning the foundation of Zion, the inhabitants of Zion, and the praise of Zion. That, again, the foundation of Zion, the inhabitants of Zion, and the praise of Zion. The first thing we see here in our text, verses 1 through 3, is the foundation of Zion. The psalmist says, He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. What is this name? Zion, it is the poetic name for uh, the city of God where God's salvation and his judgment are present. Uh, For the Israelites, this was a special place where God dwelled. It was a special place where his presence was concentrated more than any other place in the earth. And if you'll remember in Exodus chapter 40, after the temple, after the tabernacle was erected, the glory of God descended on the temple, and he dwelled among his chosen people. And what we see here in our text this morning is the psalmist celebrating this beautiful city where God decided to dwell, and that is the city of Jerusalem. The psalmist here is not concerned about the geographic beauty of the city. He's concerned about the presence of God here in this city, and he says that God founded and established this city. So the psalmist is speaking of the day of when the temple where God dwelled after, uh, under Solomon's 
uh, regime where God's presence dwelled in the temple. He's speaking of the physical temple that was built in the city of Jerusalem. God dwelled just as he did in the tabernacle. He descended upon the temple that Solomon built. And that is what the psalmist is referencing this morning. And this was a special place. Why was it a special place? Because it was the theological center for the Israelites. It was the place where the worship took place. It was a place where sacrifices took place. It was the place where education, where you could find out more about God, where people took their pilgrimages. It was a very significant city in the life of the Israelites. Why? Because God's presence was there in a very unique and special way. And the psalmist says he loves the gates of Zion more than any other. It's not that God hated the other tribes of Israel. It's not that God hated any other place uh, of his people's dwelling. But God set his affection on the city of Jerusalem out of his own love, out of his own purpose. You see, Zion is not special. Uh, uh, God did not decide to dwell there in Zion or in Jerusalem, if you will, because it was so special. God decided to dwell there out of his own free love. And that's the same way God deals with us in salvation. There's nothing that is special about us that can make God come down and say, save me. God loves us out of his own free choice. He loves us out of who he is. Why he loved me, I have no idea. But all to him I owe. And that's how God operates. He does it out of love. There was nothing unique. There was nothing special about this location except that God set his affection on this city and established his presence there. The psalmist says, glorious things of thee are spoken. Psalm 46 says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Do you understand this morning that this city is rooted and it is founded by God the most high, the true and living God, so this city cannot be shaken, of which the psalmist speaks, because God is there. God is her protector. God is her anchor, just as the church is built on the foundation and confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will not be shaken. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church because it is rooted on Christ the rock. The city of God was rooted and founded by him. And according to the psalmist, he says that there are more beautiful things about this city. In verses 4 through 6, we see the inhabitants of Zion. Take note of this. He says in verse 4, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. Now, what do we have here in our text, beloved? God is revealing to us that his program of salvation extends beyond the wall of ethnic Israel. So what the Israelites sung in their worship service daily and routinely from Psalm 87 was that God was going to save the nations that surrounded them. And so Israel was supposed to understand that they were supposed to be a witness to God Almighty, a witness to the nations of the true and living God. And that's what they sung in their worship services regularly. 
These here, you will notice, were beyond God's chosen people. We know from the story of Abraham, we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know the tribes descend from Jacob, and we know that God comes and delivers His people, sets them free from Egypt. But here in the text, the psalmist says that the Lord is still going to do some more delivering. If you'll remember, this was the promise made to Abraham. He said to Abraham, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. He said in Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How is that? How could all the families of the earth be blessed in Abraham when he was old in age and his wife was barren? Yet and still God made a promise to him. We know that God made good on his promise. Isaac was his child of promise, born miraculously. We see the tribes of Israel descend from Jacob, and we see God up to something that's bigger than just the walls of Israel. Who are these names that he mentions here? He mentions Rahab. This is the nickname given to Egypt. Uh, It's associated with a mythological sea monster that has great powers that oppose God. Babylon, need I say anything about Babylon? Babylon was guilty of sending Israel into exile, coming and destroying the temple, desecrating Israel. Babylon was one of the great enemies of Israel. And yet we see in our text this morning that God is saying that the enemies of his people will sing praises to him as well. That's what we see. Don't turn your nose up. Remember, you were under God's wrath before he saved you. Philistia, Tyre, Cush. You know, I had a friend in high school that said uh, that was just notorious. He he never, he could never stay out of trouble. And it was one of those people you said, you would think to yourself, there is, there is no hope for this guy. And then one day, I was on the phone with a coach, and he said, have you heard about such and such? I said, no, what? He said, he is born again. He is saved. He is sanctified, and he is filled with the Spirit. He said, there truly must be a God if this man can find salvation. And beloved, we will be surprised when we get to eternity to see that many of the enemies of God will be singing and dancing around the throne with us as well. And that is what the song, that's what Israel sang, sung of in Psalm 87. The second half of verse 4, he says, And will say this one was born in Zion. Now, this does not mean that these nations here were literally born in the city of Jerusalem. But the Hebrew word here, Yalad, carries the idea of actually being born there. They will be treated with all the rights and privileges of a citizen as though they were born there, even though they are from different nations. So that is, these enemy nations will have a dual citizenship. Ethnically speaking, they'll be from Egypt, they'll be from Tyre and Cush, but their passport will say born in Zion, born in the city of God with all the rights and privileges therein. You see, that's what they are singing of. I had a friend uh, from the Bahamas, a dear friend older than me, told me that in the Bahamas, if your father or one of your parents are born in the Bahamas and you're born in the States, you are able to retain 
a dual citizenship until you reach the age 21, I think it is, and then you have to declare which one uh, you will choose, whether you will be a citizen of your parents' native land or the city or the uh, country of your birth. Well, beloved, in God's economy, we won't have to choose because the Lord saves you as you are. He saves you as a black man. He saves you as a Latino. He saves you as a Haitian. He saves you as a Jamaican. He saves you as an Asian. He saves you as an African. And you do not have to give up who you are culturally because that is God's creativity in you. He redeems that. He saves the whole person along with their culture. So you don't have to pick and choose, Uh, you see. It's Trinitarian imperialism, not cultural imperialism. The Lord saves you and redeems you, and there are certain things about all of our cultures that have to die, but you don't have to die. You don't have to die. Who you are does not have to be erased. God saves you and redeems you as you are for His purposes. Verse 5, indeed of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High will establish Himself, will establish her. Verse 5 again reinforces verse 4, but he also gives us a clue that this is a future event. So in other words, the psalmist is saying that there is something yet to happen. This is a distant reality that God is going to do something, a great event in history where we will actually see enemies coming and rejoicing around the throne. Verse 6, the Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in here. Again, repetition in the Hebrew summonses us to pay attention. It calls us to pay attention. When we see something repeated, we need to look down and pay attention. Once again, the theme is repeated. That was already mentioned in verse 4 and 5. And then it says that the it gives us a description of the Lord recording all the people who were born into this registry. So again, the Lord is going to establish this. This is the redemptive work of the Lord. And what I want to say to you all is this. You see, God has a book of life. He already has an elect established. But in his mind, it's already done. God knows the first from the last. And these people, these enemies are already, God is already pursuing them in his mind. But when God saves you, it's almost like a seal. It's a stamp. You're in the registry now. It's just like when you walk to your classroom on the first day of school when I was in elementary school and we would see our names written down on the teacher's roll outside of the classroom. But then when you walked into class and she called your name, you hear me this morning, she called your name, it was official. God has a book of life, but when he calls your name and brings you into the kingdom, it's stamped, it's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered, it's irrevocable. No one can snatch you out of his kingdom. No one can snatch you out of his hand. We see here the foundation of Zion. We see the inhabitants of Zion, and we see the praises of Zion Verse 7, as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. And what we have here is a celebration. And it is fitting that they celebrate. It is fitting that they celebrate when they consider that God reigns over all the nations. 
it is fitting that they celebrate when they consider that God is sovereign over all the territories of the earth. It is fitting to celebrate when we realize that God will actually redeem and save our enemies. Because it means that there's no one or no thing beyond God's control. So they rejoice. Not only do they rejoice because he is sovereign over the nations, they rejoice because these people will not merely recognize who God is and just say, yes, I know about him, but they will know him in an intimate way. What the psalmist is saying is that these enemies who were far off, who knew about the true and living God, will come into relationship with him and know the true and living God. And so Israel rejoiced. They sung of these great things because they understood that their God was the hope for the nations. All my fountains are in you. The springs envisioned here are similar to what we saw in Psalm 46 already. The springs in Ezekiel, Joel, and all these pertain to life and fertility. So what the psalmist sees is a city where life is given. The psalmist sees reproduction. He sees beauty. He sees no death. He sees healing of the peoples. So he is rejoicing right now because they realize that in the true and living God, there is life. There is the fullness of life in the true and living God. And beloved, in light of this, Israel should have been encouraged to be a light to the nations. Israel should have known that their calling was to go out and proclaim the truth about the true and living God, and that the nations were to come and worship at the great city of Jerusalem. But we know as we read our Bible that Israel failed miserably in this task. But we see that God does not leave his people without hope. The promises that God makes, he himself fulfills them. And we see the partial fulfillment of these realities when there are proselytes, when there are strangers, when there are foreign nations that come to recognize and worship Israel, though not many, we see partial fulfillments of this. But we see the ultimate fulfillment uh, in this in none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who by his death died and accomplished all that Israel was supposed to do. But the Bible says that Jesus didn't remain in the grave because Jesus got up with all power in his hands. And then when I continue reading the Bible, I see that Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, brothers and sisters. So do you see that the fulfillment of this promise is rooted in the work of Jesus Christ? How is it that Abraham can have children from every nation, tribe, and tongue? How is it that Abraham can claim that all the families of the earth are blessed through him? They can claim that because Paul says that the offspring to which God was referencing is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that all authority has been given to me. I am the true Israel. I am the one who accomplishes all that the Father has set out for me to do. 
And if anyone believes in me, then he becomes a son or a daughter of Abraham. And if anyone believes in me, he becomes a son or a daughter of the Most High. And so Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and do what Israel was supposed to do. Israel was supposed to bring them. Now Jesus says, you go out. You go out and reach the nations. And as I continue reading the Bible, I see that Jesus ascended into heaven and then he sent forth his Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, what happens? All the nations under heaven hear the gospel in their own language. And you tell me that God doesn't make good on his promises. And you tell me that this psalm that the Israelites sung Sunday or uh, Sabbath after Sabbath didn't come to fruition. They saw a day where the Lord was going to reach people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Pentecost was a great event. The sending of the Holy Spirit was God making good on his promise. How is it that people are in union with Christ? It's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and wrestles us down and saves us and brings us in the family of God. And the Holy Spirit is indiscriminate in his salvation. No ethnic group, no culture can claim supremacy over any other. Not in God's kingdom. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I don't care what the history books say. I don't care what you may have deceived yourself into thinking. If you think your kind is the only kind that will be saved, you're going to be surprised when you get to heaven. <clears throat> Paul says that this is a part of the work that the Spirit is doing right now in Ephesians chapter 2. He's building a mosaic of people. He's not building a monolithic kingdom. He's building a beautiful and diverse kingdom. Diversity has been hijacked by the culture. We in the church have the true meaning of diversity. And God is building a kingdom full of people of different kinds. And I want to offer us this morning a couple applications. Cross Point, Central Florida is becoming a global center. Central Florida is becoming a place where the nations are coming. Regularly, we have something over 50 million people travel through our city. They're on their way to Disney, but we still have masses coming through our city. There are people from the Middle East investing in resorts. There are direct flights from here to the UAE. There are people moving from Atlanta to Black Exodus that once happened over two decades ago to Atlanta is coming down here. Statistics demonstrate this. All sorts of things are happening here in our city in connection with different kinds of people. The United States Census says that one-third of the population will become uh, minorities, which are one-third of the population, are expected to become the majority by 2042 at 54% of our population. And by 2023, minorities will comprise of more than half of our children. And there's no reason for us to run. We need to press the gospel into these realities. Where are we going? Why are we running? 
I support my wife and I love foreign missions. We engage in it. My dad's from the Caribbean. I love the nations, but the nations are coming here. There's no need for me to run and leave. I'm going to stay here and preach the gospel, and I'm going to give my money to the people who want to grow across the seas, and I'll go occasionally, but I'm not afraid of the changing demographic. And if you are a follower of Christ, you shouldn't be afraid of the changing demographic either. What you should be doing is thanking God that you get to save a little bit of money and you can reach people right across your street. That's what you should be doing. Is there a witness? Okay. I just want to make sure I'm not preaching to myself. Amen, lights. The second thing I want to say about that is we should be praying for a sweep of the Holy Spirit through Islam. And be careful that the rhetoric you see on TV does not make your heart grow angry and cold to opportunities to reach people with the gospel. And that is not me making a political statement at all. I could care less who gets elected. I'm still going to proclaim the gospel no matter what, till I die. And you should too. But what I want to say to you, and neither am I advocating pacifism. Oh, don't run here and say, uh, Pastor Walker, why did you bring a man up in here and say we should just let all hell break loose in our nation? That's not what I'm saying. The civil magistrate has a responsibility to protect our nation, and I'm fine with that. That's their role. But what I am not going to allow myself to do, and what you should not allow yourself to do, is get so incited and so filled with animosity that you pray for the death of your enemies more than their salvation. Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I pray for justice as well. How can I pray for both? Because God is just and God is merciful. God, bring those to justice who who need justice and show mercy to as many as you have determined to show mercy to. So in the meantime, I will go and I will show mercy as often as I can, but I will maintain that justice must be done as well. Beloved, don't let your hearts become filled with anger so much to the point that you cannot reach out to your enemy. How do we relate to one another? Because we see in the text here that God is doing a work that's greater than the person we see in the mirror, I think we approach one another with humility. I think there's a call for us, if you're in the dominant culture, to realize that maybe uh, you have seen things one way your entire life, and just because you've seen it one way your entire life does not mean that it's necessarily right. It's different. And when you come in contact with someone who loves Jesus uh, and even a neighbor from a minority culture, it doesn't mean that their way of doing things are wrong. It's different, and we ought to celebrate our differences. God is three persons, three distinct persons, yet one God. There's unity and diversity in the Godhead. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are not the same person. Three different persons, one God. And we, as the body of Christ, are called to mutual love and respect for one another and to celebrate God's creativity in our cultures. I had a friend that was much older than me named Reverend Grant who grew up in a very racial 
racially tense time. And one day when we were sitting at dinner with a group of other ministers, he said to me uh, and a couple, he said, why is it that our church keeps hosting all of these conferences on racial reconciliation? He said, why do we keep on talking about these things? And we proceeded to explain the context from which he came was one where even people that bore the name of Jesus Christ was hostile to him. And I said as gently as I could, honoring that he had gone through a lot in his life, that God is doing something that's bigger than just our kind. And he said, well, I think things are always going to be this way. And the reality, there's a, some truth to that because sin still exists this side of glory. It does. Why do we need to talk about race? Because racism will always exist until Jesus comes. Just like every other sin will always exist until Jesus comes. That's why we read, that's why we preach, and we speak out against it. And what I saw in Reverend Grant was a, a bit of cynicism and a, a bit of despair. And I run into that from time to time. I run into that in my own experience. Maybe some of you have had a similar experience. But what I want to say to you all this morning is that when we turn to the final pages of the Bible, we see that this beautiful city of Zion, Jerusalem, descends to heaven, and God says, behold, my dwelling place is with man. He's going to establish his kingdom right here on the earth. We also see that there is a beautiful city where a river runs through it and a tree of life is on either side. That's healing. There's no more death. There's no more sin. There's no more crimes against one another. But if you flip back a few chapters, John says, behold, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue were dancing around the throne. Beloved, this is a microcosmic expression of the great eternal reality of Christ's kingdom. And in the end, we win. Be encouraged this morning. Thank you.